Welcome to the latest edition of Talking Wild Madness. This is Adam, and this episode is coming to you from the top of Mount Wellington. Uh, and I've I came up to the very top, and there's a there's a lookout overlooking basically all all of Hobart, uh, and you would see a beautiful view. Except there's a haze over the whole city, and I don't know if it's cloud. I don't think it's smoke because it doesn't smell. It doesn't smell like smoke. Uh, this happened to me before when I climbed up Bluff Knoll in Albany. Uh, I think it was a two-hour climb to get to the top, and there was just a giant cloud over the um, over the view. So I am here at the top of Mount Wellington. I can just make out a few of the landmarks down below, but uh, yeah, I, I took a couple of photos, and it looked like. It looked like I was still in Poland, uh, in 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 a snowstorm. Uh, there's there's yeah, it's very the visibility is low. That's that that's the case. I did try and start the podcast over on closer to the lookout, but the there was too much wind. So there's I found this. It's like a stone cabin, and it looks like it might have been built. Man, this could have been built. 200 years ago uh, I think the roof was probably built about three years ago the roof's very nice and new but the stone yeah the stone it looks like it's been here forever I don't know someone someone with some idea of of Hobart history would know but unfortunately uh, that's that's not me uh, so yeah it has it, it has been uh, we're into the second month of of the of the tour of the journey, whatever it is, whatever this is that I'm on. And if you've heard a few of the other previous episodes, we went through Germany and and Poland and back to Perth, and now over here in Tasmania for uh, the best part of a month, I suppose. But this part, this leg of the journey, is a family holiday, <laughs> so. Uh, I am bunked in in my sister's house uh, with my sister and my brother-in-law and my two children and my mother and my father and two dogs that my sister owns, one of which is a regular-sized golden retriever named Riley. And the other is, I actually don't know what this fella is, uh, but he is the size of a small cow, uh, or maybe a maybe a maybe a calf, but not a, not a newborn calf. He's the size of a calf that's maybe a month old. He literally he's the biggest dog I've ever seen in my life, and he's not big and lean and wiry. He's big and bulky. Uh, it's he's like a giant Saint Bernard, and he's all he's jet black. Uh, he's about as high as the kitchen table. He's about as long as the kitchen table, which seats uh, six people, seats eight people, uh, if you if you include the two ends. This dog is his name is Django, and he's named after Django Reinhardt, my uh, sister and brother-in-law in a jazz band called Django's Tiger, and they have a dog the size of a tiger in in the house. And the house is is right in South Hobart. You can walk right into the city, so it's it's an old, uh, it's like an old cottage, 
home. So it's got two bedrooms, one small living room and a kitchen. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people sharing that space and a golden retriever and a, a freak of a dog. Uh, yeah, I will try and find out. I'll try and find out how big this dog is. Uh, not how big this dog is. I know exactly how big the dog is. He's too big. But I'll try and find out what kind of uh, breed of dog he is. He's very friendly, but he has a big kind of um, kind of a, a, a dense look in his eyes. He, he doesn't have that. He doesn't have the fire. He doesn't have that that. Um, he doesn't look like a crafty dog. He looks like a very slow dog, and, and I use the word slow not not in a speed, uh, not not to describe his speed, his mental speed. I'm, I'm describing, although he doesn't move that fast either. I have to say he's a lumbering, he's a big lumbering cow of a dog, and he has a he does have a lovely nature, uh, but he drinks out of the toilet bowl also. Which is uh, which is quite disturbing because he'll go into the bathroom and he he knows how to open the lid. I've watched I've watched in horror and uh, he, uh, he flicks the lid open with his nose and then his head just disappears into the toilet bowl and his head is about the size of a hollow toilet bowl if you can imagine what that is. That's how big this guy's head is, and then you just hear the the lapping of of his. Of his enormous tongue, his tongue is about the size of of a man's foot, about the sole of a man's foot. That's how big this guy's tongue is. So you just hear this tongue scooping up the water from the toilet bowl that seven people are using. Oh my lord! And then you go and sit down, maybe at the kitchen, and then he comes out of the toilet and he want he comes right up to you. And when you're sitting at the kitchen table, he is almost eye to eye with you. He's that big. And his mouth is soaking wet with toilet water, and he's just looking at you like he's like he has like a grizzly bear look to to his uh, to him. And he looks at you, and he wants to get close to you. He wants to get very close to you, but he's got yeah, he's he's got toilet water all over his face. But he's part of the family, and he's part of the family dynamic that is happening uh, in South Hobart at the moment. Which may account for the fact that I'm on top of Mount Wellington in a stone cottage by myself, uh, but it's <laughs> it's quite it is quite lovely. It is quite nice as well. Uh, so I think the last podcast we we were uh, we were at a cricket match. I've had some interesting feedback from the cricket match podcast. Uh, um, that cricket podcast was one of those ones where. I'm not sure exactly uh, how that's going to be uh, uh, that that was going to be received. So I thought maybe I'll hold off on that one. Uh, but in the in the grand policy of uh, of of talking wild madness, I put it up anyway. And again, and the whole reason that policy is in place is that I got quite a few messages of people saying how much they enjoyed listening to the cricket commentary on a game of cricket that they that they didn't um, that they couldn't see and they didn't know who was playing and a few people messaged from overseas who were who are Australians who are who are based overseas and they said they really enjoyed hearing 
the magpies in the background and they really enjoyed hearing the sound of the cricket bat on the ball and that, that banter that happens between between cricket players when, when they're out, out on the field. And it, yeah, this one, one person said that it really reminded them of being back home and it yeah made them feel closer to to australia to to their to their home so you know that was really lovely and that's then so that's just another reason why the uh the policy of uh, we'll record it and, and and publish it uh no matter what because you just never know what people what what people enjoy what people get out of it um so uh, some updates on the on the riding that that's been going on on the on the holiday. Uh, the uh, I took about three days off writing the erotic novel because uh, it started to make me feel ill, started to make me feel sick. Uh, so I just had to take I just had to take a day or two off, which I don't usually do. Uh, but I yeah I just had to for for the sake of my own headspace, for the sake of my own sanity. I didn't want to be. I just needed a break. I just needed a break. But we're we're over halfway now in the erotic novel, so uh, yeah, it'll be over soon. Thank God, it'll be over soon. Uh, the other work that's happened, that's been happening, is that the screenplay for Edward and Isabella, or Isabella and Edward, is it Edward and Isabella? I think it Edward and Isabella. It, Isabella and Edward. I think it should be Edward and Isabella. So that's been going. That's been going really well, and we're about a third of the way through the screenplay already, and it's flowing very nicely. It's difficult to write a film where you literally only have two actors in the film and to tell the story, but it's it's been it's been going surprisingly surprisingly well so far. So hopefully it it will it will continue. I think the setup of stories are always easier. I think painting the Painting the scene, setting the scene, setting the tone. Uh, I think that's probably the easiest part, maybe about song, uh, not songwriting. Well, maybe songwriting too, but I, I think it's certainly the easiest part about writing, uh, whether you're writing uh, a novel or whether you're writing a screenplay. The the initial setup is, is the easiest and the most, or no, I wouldn't say the most satisfying, but certainly, certainly maybe the... Uh, among the most fun uh, because it's it just opens all the possibilities of, of where the story can go and if you're writing and you have a good flow w with the writing the possibilities suggest themselves to to the writer so you're not you're you're taking you're more taking kind of dictation uh, from from the universe rather than you know building it page by page working it out page by page it kind of makes its own sense to you and then you just you just keep going now that's only so far through the setup so we're a third of the way through so we're about to get into the we're about to get into the shit we're about to get into the weeds uh so to speak uh sorry i shouldn't have said shit uh but we're about to get into the into the heavy the juice uh so hopefully that flow will will, will continue and uh and yeah I, ho I hope it does i think it will i'm pretty sure it will it always it always seems to so so we'll just we'll just keep going with that uh and uh we've had um a a listener who has got in touch and wants to audition for one for the for the isabella role so that's just so exciting 
Um, and this, I haven't met this woman. I do know the person who contacted me on behalf of the woman, uh, but I haven't seen the woman. Sorry, I haven't seen the woman, but I've seen a picture of her, and she kind of looks like what I was half imagining Isabella to look like. So it'd be interesting if something like that was to come to fruition. And the way life is going, I reckon it probably might fall into fall into into place like that. Um, so the screenplay is going well, and it was interesting actually when that person got in contact to to inquire about auditioning for the film. Uh, it became very real, like it was real anyway, and I'm and I'm devoting a lot of my time to to writing it, and I plan to devote uh, time obviously to film it and and put it together. Uh, so it wasn't like a it wasn't a, a dream project or a pipe dream. The process was well underway, but then when that person got in contact and said that they'd like to uh, audition or they'd like someone that they know told them that they want to audition, uh, yeah, it just became very real it became it became i won't say frightening but it was affirming and and it, and it was yeah it gave it gave the whole project more energy um and probably helped a little bit with with the flow and a bit and, and with the writing um i shared and i i never share my the writing that i do while it's in pro process or in progress um but I have shared a bit of the writing with uh, with a couple of people, and the feedback I've gotten from them also contributed to the energy of the piece. So it's a, this is a very very new, this is very unch uncharted kind of waters, uncharted territory for for me to take. Uh, especially sharing the sharing the work. And I think maybe that had something to do with the travel that's been happening because I've been I've been away from home myself now for six weeks and I'm going to be away from home for another two and a bit weeks. Um, although Tasmania feels like a home, as in Australia, even though it's it's quite unique and it's quite different um, in, in in its own in its own bizarre way. Such a beautiful place and it has got a different culture. There's a family that's just come out of the lookout walking past. And I think you, they might be an Arabian family or a Turkish family. Hello. And it's got a, a father and a mother and uh, three children. One boy and two girls. And the, the two girls are veiled uh, and the, the mum is veiled. And they look like a really happy family. The dad had one of those vicious Arabian beards, one of those beautiful square long beards. Um, but he had flip flops on, and he was had a just a shirt and jeans on. And he was carrying his son. Man, just amazing, just absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, I think I was sharing the the early writings. Which I, which I, as I said, I don't usually do, and I, it, it, I think that's more in in the same vein as like taking the selfies in the middle of the street, in in Poland or in, or uh, or wherever, uh, just stepping right outside of, of your comfort zone, and it's just 
yeah, it, every time, every time you do it, it just it seems to, it seems to, bear fruit. It seems to bear, maybe not the fruit that you intended, but every time you step outside of your comfort zone, it really does just seem the world just kind of leans in and says, "Hey, take this for your for your effort. Take this for your trouble." Um, yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna give you this. This will keep you interested for for a week or two, whatever whatever that gift happens to be. Um, and yeah, obviously it's not not always the not always the fruit that that you intended to to pick. Uh, but it's it's very interesting being on the move and being away from uh, home, and then having to find places of comfort and. Uh, solace the right word like if I was at home I'd be I'd be at this level of comfort but I'd be I'd probably be on my kitchen bench yeah I'd probably be on my kitchen bench that's kind of where I'm at my most relaxed and yet without a home I I have to go to the top of Mount Wellington in Hobart and and uh and sit in a stone in a stone little cabin, which is about the size of of my sister's toilet. All that's missing is that giant dog. But it makes you find those those spaces of comfort uh, in in the natural environment, I suppose. In, you know, in the earth. Uh, and uh, as far as finding spaces of beauty to to relax and get some perspective and and gather some thoughts and 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 be at ease and be away from the chaos of a of a of a clustered family holiday um it's interesting that you yeah you come out to spaces like this and then you just fit into them so so effortlessly uh, and i think australians do that i think australians do that particularly well because the country is so vast and so so different uh, in its in its in its ecosystems, but it just seems that Australians can just travel anywhere around Australia, as well as people coming to Australia. I suppose it's probably a bit romantic to say it's just Australians, but we can hang out in rainforests, or we can hang out on the top of mountains, or we can hang out in deserts, or we can hang out by the coast, and we just slide into the environment. And, and just sit with it and like that Arabian family just walking walking over that over the crest of the edge there of Mount Wellington they just look completely at home and maybe I'm saying that's an Australian thing but hopefully it probably isn't it's probably a, the people in Oman probably say that's an Armenian thing and the people in Polish say that's a Polish thing it's just this element of being able to to slide in and and find moments or moments or, or spaces of peace and quiet. And I suppose if you're really good at it, you can just do that internally. You can just do that in your head. <laughs> when you're surrounded by seven people and two dogs, and everyone's semi-arguing about who's going to cook the dinner and what we're going to have for dinner, and we can't eat that, and don't put too much garlic in this, and you've had enough to drink, and you over there. You be quiet and don't forget to leave the door open for the giant dog to drink out of the toilet bowl. And it's time for bed. And he's been watching too many computer games. And he's, you know, and on and on and on. 
and you just slide up the top of a mountain and sit in a stone cabin. Or that, or the river is here, the water here, uh, the Derwent River. One of the most incredible things about Tasmania is people will drive you around and you'll be in this, this idyllic landscape and you'll be winding along the Derwent and this is just this gorgeous river that looks something like out of that episode of Buster Scruggs that Tom Waits was in when he was mining for gold. And he was just in this Arcadian paradise. And that's what many, many sections of Tassie are like, or many, many sections of Hobart anyway. I haven't actually been out of, out of, the, out of the main city. I've been to the country in the city, but I haven't been... I think we're, so, um, we're supposed to go to a, a place three and a half hours north uh, on on Friday. Um, and I have to get back for a, a gig in the city in Hobart on Sunday. Uh, although you can hit the countryside in Hobart, yeah, within 20 minutes. You're, you're in, well, you're here. You literally, it just took me about 10 minutes to get from, from where I was to where I am. Um, and I'm in, I'm literally, I'm in, I'm at the top of a mountain in, in the wilderness. But people will drive you around Tasmania and they will point to areas and say, oh, that area there, that's, that's, uh, that's a very low socioeconomic area and uh, there's a lot of unemployment there and, and people, uh, you know, it just, they don't have access to services and it's, it's, you don't want to live there. And I'm looking at where they're pointing. And it's this rolling, green, lush hill in the middle of January. In the middle of January, it's still lush and green, and it's cresting off, curling off into the sky, and there's houses, little, almost like hobbit villages dotted over this mountain, and it's overlooking the sweeping, you know, blue Derwent, crystal clean Derwent River. Um, but that's for for from for, from some perspectives, that's a terrible place to live. Uh, yeah, it's it is it's, it's it it is very interesting. I had a terrible. Uh, uh, how do I even describe this? I had a terrible, homoerotic, homoerotic rape nightmare uh, I think it was last night it was absolutely frightening uh, I don't know if homoerotic rape nightmare is the right way to describe it but I think it might be and I apologize to anybody if it, if it isn't uh, where I'm where where I live in Albany there's a bar and the bar is called six degrees and it and it calls itself a Melbourne-based bar in Western Australia. Now, I don't really know what that means. Uh, I think maybe because the bar is slightly smaller than other bars, maybe that's what they're talking about. But the bar is not that small. It's not like a laneway bar. It's still pretty big. But it's a, it is, it's a nice bar in Albany, and it's... What makes it a good place, what makes it a good bar, is that the people who manage it are invested emotionally in the bar. Now, I don't mean they're invested financially in the ownership of the bar, 
but they're turning up to work every day. And they're thinking about new ideas to, to put into the bar. And if you can get an employee that does that for you, probably in any industry, but particularly in the, in the hospitality industry, So you should absolutely hang on to these 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 people, these people that that turn up to work and treat the place like they do have a financial interest in it. And there are a couple of people who work there who are of this of this mind, of this of this way of, of thinking. And it's a it's a very good way, I have to say. I think it's a great way of thinking. Uh, now Financial, financial futures and plannings aside, and, and I hope that the people working in, in the bar have their own have their own plan for the for their future. But I think, at uh, for what they're doing on a day to day basis, and treating the place like it is their future, in a way makes their role there far more satisfying, and it it like like the creative. Uh, like the creative act of, of say writing it creates its own energy and the job becomes a creative exercise rather than oh, I've got to turn up and manage a bar tonight I've got to deal with I've got to deal with the public and I have to I have to pull beers and I have to pour wine and I have to work the till and I have to I have to do this and I have to do that rather than it being a mundane drudgery uh, the Tuesday night that they might go and, and work there well, that's the Tuesday night that they've organised, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be half price curry and and a live comedians coming in, and this is an event that they've organised, and they have a venue to do it, which happens to be their their place of work. So then that Tuesday night becomes you become emotionally invested and you become creatively invested, and if, if the night goes well, you get inspired to come up with, with with more things. So one of the guys that works there in this capacity. Is a is an Englishman called Fraser, and we'll call him Fraser because that's his name. And Fraser is of this mind, and I don't know Fraser like extremely well. Um, I've I've played there a few times, and I've had a had a couple of drinks there a few times, so I only know him as Fraser, the manager. Uh, and he's a he's a slim he's he's not he's not small but he's not a giant he's not a big man he's a, a slim uh, and he maybe he might be 25 26 uh, and he's a delight he's a delightful barman and he's a just he's always friendly he remembers your name he remembers what you drink you know he's this fantasy hospitality character uh, you know, out of Cheers or something. He's just he's just crazy. And then he has that. He, he's from the north of England, uh, so he has that uh, that warm, welcoming, almost Irish way of talking. And yeah, he, he'll he like I said, he'll greet you, he'll come and shake your hand, you'll say hello, uh, and then he'll ask you what you'd like to drink, and he'll you know it's not that busy. He'll get it himself and he'll bring it over and all this kind of lovely stuff. And he's organized music nights and comedy nights and different food nights and theme nights. And, and he's always on social media on behalf of Six Degrees. He's always, 
he's always on the online making posts sending out pictures and and the people that come into the pub have become his friends you know at, at least facebook friends so he he'll post a picture of himself and his girlfriend and their dog on the beach you know and there'll be 140 people that'll that'll thumbs up or, or or give it give it some give it some thumbing love in in some way and 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 even write a few comments looking good fraser the happy couple all that kind of stuff you know he kind of, he kind of brings joy into people's into people's lives um in a very subtle and and i think powerful way so it was complete. It was a complete shock to me uh, that I had one of these dreams, one of these nightmares, and 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 Fraser was in it. And I, now I'm still in Tasmania, so this podcast will be out today or tomorrow. Uh, so Fraser, if you're listening, I, I'll I'll explain everything and apologize when I see you. Um, yeah, and I'm sure. Yeah, well, look. Anyway, I'll I'll get on with the story. In the dream, I, I, I was in the corner of the beer garden. Now, what's weird about that is Six Degrees doesn't have a beer garden. It, it has a few tables outside on uh, the alfresco, like a few, a few bolted steel uh, stools around beer barrels that are, I think, are bolted to the pavement as well. And then they have a they have a, a nice music concert room out in the back, which has a really good sound. And then they have a little outdoor area out the back of the back, but there's no real beer garden. So in this in this dream that I had, I was in the beer garden, and it was in six degrees, even though they didn't have one. And I was in there. And it was a hot summer's day, in the dream, and I was having a few beers by myself. And I think I was playing. I was playing guitar, but I wasn't like I wasn't performing at the pub, or, or I was. I just had. I was just like playing the guitar to myself in the corner and I was so comfortable that I took my shoes off in the dream and you know you don't normally take your shoes off when you're out out and about but I, f I was just really peaceful and really relaxed and I took my shoes off and I remember uh, looking at my socks in the dream thinking oh look at that you're, this is this is a lovely day this is a very nice moment and at that time I didn't know it was a dream I thought it was it was actually reality and who knows if my God, let's not, all right, we won't get into that. But then I looked up and I saw two men lying on their backs on tables, completely naked, completely naked. And I looked up and I thought, oh, that, like I was, I was there thinking about my socks. And then I looked up and I was like, man, they must be really relaxed. Those two fellows. And then I had a like a closer look, and Frazier was having sex with one of these men, and he was he he had like the man's legs up over his shoulders, but in the dream he didn't look like slim happy Frazier. He had a shaved head, and he was bulkier, like muscle and fat bulky. And he had a couple of band-aids on his head, and he had this filthy scowl on his face as he was having sex with one of these men, who was, yeah, who was, who was, as it turns out, not very comfortable at all. And then I remember thinking, oh, this is very uncomfortable. I think I'm, I think I'm going to have to leave. 
and I, I even, I remember the, the I, I was so uncomfortable and wanted to get out of there so badly that I left my guitar in my shoes and walked out of the place in my socks. And the, and the walk from my table to the exit was terrifying. And then I was thinking, and that was the end of the dream, or that was the end of the nightmare. And then I was thinking that uh, I'd never seen Fraser like that, and Fraser's probably never been like that. But that vision of, of angry, muscle fat, rapist uh, Fraser. That's probably within Fraser somewhere, if he let it take its course. As it's probably within, well, if it's within Fraser, it's definitely within everyone else. Um, and you have this golem, this thing inside of you. If, if left untethered, if left unmanaged, can turn into that. And many people do, no, not many people, but quite, you know, enough people do turn into that. And I, I think maybe a lot of people would like to think that they don't have that that golem inside of them, that 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 very very dark spirit, that very dark energy inside of them. Uh, that's just waiting for the opportunity to take over the the host, to take over to take over the the mind and the spirit, to nest in the in the brain and turn uh, turn the, the the being into itself. And then I had a shower and I thought, what on earth am I having dreams like this for? And then there were a few, and then there were a few clues. Uh, I, th I still think the, my brain is processing the Auschwitz and Birkenau trip. I, uh, and the other day, about three days ago, four days ago, I decided that I was gonna grow a mustache. Uh, and I, I don't usually have mustaches ever because they, they, I, I don't, I don't, I don't carry the mustache off quite well. But I thought I was going to uh, shave and give myself a Charlie Chaplin mustache. And then I thought I'm going to bring this mustache back uh, because obviously Hitler stole Charlie Chaplin's act. Stole his definitely stole his mustache, and then has ruined that mustache for man. Of, of all the terrible things he did, this is low. This is quite low on the list, but he did ruin uh, that mustache for. I mean, it's been seventy-five years since the end of World War Two, and uh, I, I haven't seen anyone ever with a Charlie Chaplin mustache ever. So I thought it might be uh, it might be fitting if I. If I uh, if I tried to bring that tried to bring that back, and I have to say, it's been five or six days now, you know. And when you first do it, if you have a morning shave and you just have a little bit of stubble and you give yourself a Charlie Chaplin mustache, it's barely recognizable. It's barely noticeable, and it only you know in, in certain light when you tilt your head that way and. And someone's telling you not to put too much garlic in the in the carbonara, uh, you know, under the oven light, under that warm oven light. And then someone from the other side of the room, uh, you know, wrestling to get 
out of out, out of the way of a giant dog says is that a, have you, what do you have you got a hitler mustache and then obviously you start to you know you start to explain that you're bringing the charlie chaplin mustache back and uh and and it's for it, it, yeah it's for other purposes but i think maybe the universe interpreted my charlie chaplin mustache as an adolf hitler mustache and then compounded with the visit to birkenau and auschwitz uh i think the universe then just said okay adam we're gonna try and wake you up from this madness and we're going to pick one of the nicest warmest gentlest kindest souls that you know in your home while you're especially while you're away we're going to we're going to pick one of the nicest uh, uh, purest individuals and we're going to make you watch him at, at, at his worst at his worst we're going to we're going to make you watch him uh, and you're not going to be wearing any shoes while 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 that's happening um, and while we were at Auschwitz there were uh, there were two enormous displays of confiscated shoes piles there was two separate piles one one pile must have gone uh, I wouldn't even I, I wouldn't know millions of pairs of shoes it looked like and then the second one was uh, uh, just a giant pile of children's shoes Jesus Christ so I've extended the moustache uh, based on on the dream uh, I've extended the the, the moustache so now it's more like a a Larry Bird moustache than a than a Charlie Chaplin one and we'll see what the universe thinks of that if that was a good compromise because I don't think I can handle any more of those dreams and on a on a, on a far more pleasant uh, note we made the Polish sour soup uh, yesterday for everybody and I uh, in order to make the sour soup you have to make this starter which is this uh, I think it's called zurzek or zurek and you take rye flour and water and you put some allspice all uh, pods in there with some bay leaves and some garlic and peppercorns and you just let that bubble and funkify for uh, about five days and it got so smelly uh, that uh, my sister said I, it had to go outside. So it went out the back veranda you know, for the first part of the day, and then it went out the front veranda for the for the second part of the day. Because you had to leave the lid open so the air could keep getting into it and it could keep feeding off the air. And, yeah, it just had this beautiful, sour uh, funk to it. Uh, so it it lived outside. It got a little bit of Hobart sun uh, when when the changeover from the back veranda to the front veranda was was a bit slow, but I think it was all for the better. And then I drove out to Muna, to uh, which is a um, uh, I don't know it's a suburb about fifteen minutes outside of Hobart, and they have a butcher uh, there called Ziggy Zabowski, I think that's how how you say it, and it's a Polish butcher. And I had to go there for the Polish sausage because the butchers, all the butchers in town in Hobart, didn't have any Polish uh, sausage. There's a there's a place right in Salamanca called Worst House, uh, and they did have the sausage, but they didn't have enough. They only had like one packet, 
So I thought we may as well go all in, may as well do the do the right thing, and and head out to Muna to the to the Polish butcher. And I had an absolutely lovely drive because I got lost and I ended up heading out towards Richmond, uh, which is out past the airport or out near the airport. Uh, I went over the the wrong side of the Derwent, so it actually took me about an hour and a half to drive the 15 minutes to Hobart to to Muna, but it was lovely. And then I got inside the the Polish butcher, and everyone in there who was working there was uh, looked Japanese. So I was like, oh, okay, this might not be as authentic as I as I thought. Maybe it wasn't worth the hour and a half uh, uh, scenic drive to Muna. And then I, I walked around, and then I saw this old Polish-looking woman behind the behind the horseshoe butcher, and she was sitting down on a stool. So I couldn't see her when she walked in because her head was covered by the by the glass butcher cases. Uh, and I went up to one of the Japanese guys and said, "I'm after some Polish sausage." And keep in mind, the sign out the front is Ziggy Zabowski's Polish butcher. And we were standing over the sausage section, as I, as I asked him. Uh, the, the, the beef uh, and mince was to the left, and the giant porks and the lambs were to the right. But myself and the Japanese fellow butcher was, we were standing over the sausage section. And I said, do you have any Polish sausages? And he said, yes, we do, but not here. And then he pointed over my shoulder, and I turned around, and then this old Polish woman stood up off the stool. So I, 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 uh, I micro bowed to the to the Japanese butcher and said, you know, said thank you. And then I went over to the, I went over to the the Polish woman. And I said, I'm, I need some Polish sausages. And then she she gave me that Polish look. I felt like I was back in, in, in a petrol station in Krakow, getting the, getting the stoic filth from. Uh, from from the from the Polish uh, retail person, and I said I'm making a sour soup. And her eyes lit up, her eyes lit up, and it was such a beautiful little moment. And then, and then she smiled, and then she pointed. She didn't say anything. She just pointed, and she pointed to this Polish salami. And they were these giant long sausages. They were about, they were probably over a foot long, over over 30 centimeters. And they were, they were very thick. And they were white, but they were all speckled in in the uh, in the middle. And I okay, I said, look, I'm making a soup for uh, about eight people. And she said, and and she just she didn't say. She lifted her fingers, and said two. She just had lifted two fingers up. And I said, "Thank you very much." And then I know, as I, as she was as she was putting the sausages in the in the wrapping for me, I noticed on top of the counter was, and there was nothing else on top of this entire horseshoe butcher shop. On the countertops, there was nothing else. Usually, when you go into a butcher, there's you know there's jams and there's garlic there's garlic butter jars and there's marinades and you know there's all there's all stuff everywhere on on top of the butcher's counter not on top of the butcher's counter on top of the the steel display cabinet there's usually a bit of stuff there in this polish butcher there was nothing except for this one jar this big big giant jar 
could you could probably fit five liters of water in it if you were to fill it up with water and all it had in it was dried mushrooms and one of the main ingredients in the in the zuzek or the zurek sour soup besides the rye starter is the dried mushrooms now i'd already picked up dried mushrooms across the road from my sister's house at a, at a little place called the salad bowl it's a beautiful little uh, beautiful little fresh fresh fruit vegetable a, a deli a butcher uh, one of those little little shops beautiful shop and I got some really nice speck in there and I got the garlic and I got the marjoram and, and I and I picked up um, the dried mushrooms the salad bowl their dried mushrooms on the on their counter and this is also very interesting because on their deli counter they had a big giant jar of dried mushrooms um, and maybe I've missed it in, in Western Australia, but I've never gone into a West Australian butcher and, and there was dried mushrooms on the, ca- on the counter. So that might be a Tasmanian thing. Maybe there's a lot of Polish people here or a lot of Polish influence or who knows. So I didn't need to buy the dried mushrooms, but I bought the, the, the two giant Polish sausages. And then I hadn't eaten because it was after 12, it was about one o'clock. My plan, because I, I don't eat until 12 in, in every day, so my plan was to drive out to get to the butcher shop about 12 and, and munch on some, um, you know, some, some meat that they had there that was ready to go. Uh, but because I got lost, I got there after one o'clock. And then, uh, so I asked before I left, I said, is this, can you eat this as it, as it is? And, and she said, yeah, it was, that was the first time she spoke. She said, yes, yes, yes. Uh, so I, on the drive home, I, I, I broke off a little bit of the, of the sausage and munched on that on the way home. And I, and I got a, a Cascade, uh, what did I get? A Cascade bitter, a red can Cascade bitter. It's very, very, very yummy, very yummy. So I, I took it home anyway, and then I started to cook up this Polish Zuzek or Zurek. And you, you fry the speck and the uh, Polish sausage sliced up uh, with onions. And then pretty much straight after, after, after you've cooked that for five, five minutes, 10 minutes in butter and olive oil, you throw in half a liter of this funky Parmesan cheese smelling, foul, bubbling, gray mixture. Uh, and I was, I was actually very, very nervous about chucking it in because I thought not only might this destroy all that beautiful speck that I, that I got and all the, the beautiful Polish sausages, and 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 the dried mushrooms the dried mushrooms in the salad bowl were 180 dollars a kilo um but i i yeah i didn't i didn't spend i didn't get i didn't get those ones but you have all these beautiful ingredients and everything's smelling good because you're basically it's basically onions butter and and bacon and and uh and more pork so it's gonna smell it's gonna smell very good um and then I, yeah, I just went for it and I, I tipped the foaming, bubbling freak show of a starter uh, made with rye flour. I just tipped it into the, into the pot and uh, I just, yeah, just went for it. And within 20 minutes, uh, people started coming into the kitchen asking me what the hell was I doing? Because the whole, the whole house smelt like hot cheese hot sharp cheese 
uh, and and it was a hot day uh, yesterday, the day that, that we made it. And obviously there's dogs tromping around with toilet water on their face. The last thing people need, you know, sharing the small space of seven people is for the entire house to uh, to, to smell like melting Parmesan. But that that is what it, that, that's what it smelled like. I actually didn't mind it. I thought I, I didn't mind the smell. And then it got, it was cooked over, um, I don't know, it was probably over an hour and a half, maybe even two hours, and then I let it sit, and then I reheated it just before serving. And you finish it with lots of chicken stock and, and sour cream, and um, and, so it, and then you, you cook it for, yeah, like I said, a long time. And then you put the uh, the bay leaf and the, all the all the dried mushrooms in there, and it 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 is it turned out to be an absolutely wonderful uh, soup. We had it with uh, Irish soda bread. My sister had baked. She she makes a mean Irish soda bread loaf. So we had Irish soda bread with butter, uh, and and this Polish soup. Everyone went back for seconds. Uh, and most people were very trepidatious about trying the soup in the, in the first place. Uh, so we kind of had to drag people to the kitchen table. Uh, my mother couldn't stomach the smell. She uh, couldn't even eat one spoonful. It was that funky and, and sour. And, and she, she, she apologized. She said, I'm really sorry, I just can't, I can't do that. Uh, so she took, a, she took an L on, on the Polo Zurek or, or Zuzek. But everyone else loved that, and even the boys, my kids, um, said that they want me to make it again. So uh, now that's that's my my eldest son. He used to eat olives when he was five, and capers. So he's he's got a bit of a yeah. He's got a, I don't know. He's got a bit of a circus going on with his with his taste. But it was great, and it, the the soup kind of tasted kind of. It was almost like eating a carbonara soup without the pasta. Uh, it, it it was it tasted a little bit French, uh, you know. Obviously, it reminded me of of Poland an, an awful lot. But and and it actually came the soup tasted pretty close to the to the soup to the the Zuzek I had on on the uh, uh, on the train to Poland. So I was really happy with that, and it was great for uh, it was great for the family to sit around, and everyone got outside their comfort zone trying uh, trying new foods. Uh, and even my dad, even my dad ate it, and and he, uh, he he has a very bizarre relationship with food, where he doesn't, he can't tolerate garlic or or mayonnaise, or dressing or flavor, and he likes things boiled uh, a lot. So even he sat down and and, uh, and devoured the soup. Now he did have, I reckon, maybe two bottles of Chardonnay beforehand. That might have had something to do with the voraciousness of his appetite, but uh, we'll just go with the flow and say, because it's a family holiday, uh, it was the soup.